Father, we want to thank you for this wonderful privilege that we have, God, just to gather together, Lord God, around your word, Father, gathering together, Lord, with no threat upon our lives. That, Lord, that we can freely enter in, Lord. And sometimes it is an act of the will, Father, and of the volition where, God, we, Father, have to speak in the same voice as the psalmist, Lord, who says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Get up and hope in God. And Father, we thank you that the moment, Lord, that we begin to press into you, Lord, you don't delay, Lord God, but you come and you meet with us. And Father, that's my prayer this morning, that God, that as we continue to look at who you are, Holy Spirit, will you open hearts this morning? Will you open minds, God? And Father, will you just cause, Lord, the atmosphere to be so thin, God, that we can just enter in and press in to know you more. Father, we worship you and we love you. And we just pray now, God, that you will just perform open heart surgery upon us, Lord. And may it be a word, Father, Lord, in season, a word, God, that will just speak, even if it is for just one person here this morning. Although, Father, I pray you speak to us all. So anoint my mouth, God. Father, anoint your word. Anoint our hearts and our minds. And Lord, may we be receptive to hear what you want to say. For in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. And amen. Now, when I was at the age of 11... As I made my way to a friend's house, I got caught by the police lighting up a cigarette. I know. Times were hard, and I didn't have a lighter back then, so all I had were these matches that you had to strike off the ground, and they would light up. And so there I was, down on my knees with this cigarette hanging out of my mouth, and I'm lighting it up. And as I did, I see this police car drive past, and I'm thinking, did they see me? And then they go around the roundabout, And they pull up beside me, and my heart just began to sink. And I'm thinking, I'm in a whole lot of trouble right now, and I've brought shame upon my family. Now, what you have to understand is that I come from an honor-shame culture, where bringing shame upon the family is something that you do not do. And so I'm pleading with the officer, and I'm saying, please, don't tell my mum. And he's like, sorry, son, but we need to tell your parents. And I'm like, great. And so at this point, I am just distraught. And so I go home and I tell my mom everything that has happened and to expect a phone call from the police. And then I brace myself to receive the biggest telling off ever. At which point, my mom, she wraps her arms around me. She wipes the tears from my face and she shows me mercy. And that, for me, would later on become a reference point and a picture of God's infinite grace and mercy. That said, let us continue with our series of looking at who is God, part three. And if you have your Bibles with you, then please open up and come with me to the book of Exodus. And we're going to read from chapter 34 and verses 6 and 7. And let's say it together, shall we? If you've done your homework. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, 
the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And then verse 8, and I love this, and Moses quickly bowed his head to the ground and worshipped. Hallelujah. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Amen. Now, as you know, our text is set within the context of Moses asking the Lord to show him his glory, his majesty, and his ways. Exodus chapter 3. But it's not until chapter 34 that God makes a full disclosure as to who he is and what he is like. And so in part 1. We saw that God has a name. And his name is more than just being called George or Henry or whatever. It means that he is a personal God. That he's not a force or a figment of our imagination, but rather he is a relational being who wants to relate with us just as he did with Moses face to face. Amen. And then in part two, we saw that there is one chief Elohim or creator God who spoke the entire universe into existence. But having said that, there is also a plethora of many lesser spiritual beings or Elohim or gods with a lowercase g. Some good while others evil. And these are at war with the chief Elohim. And you and I live right in the middle of that reality. Is there a bit of interference coming from the microphone? There isn't? No? All right. Maybe it's just me just hearing it back. Now, imagine that you were living approximately 1,500 years before Christ in the ancient Near East, where the world is filled with gods and goddesses, most of which who aren't even nice. In fact, they are malicious, malevolent, and mean-spirited right down to their very core, as some demanded child sacrifice, as we saw last time. And so... If you were a Hebrew slave living over a thousand years BC, then you would have lived under the fear of the gods. But then one day, along comes the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And this God, or Yahweh, is unlike any other. Because he is set apart and he has no rivals and no one compares to this God. Praise God. And so, and in addition, that this God, he is not angry at the world or unpredictable and unstable. No. But rather this God is filled with compassion 
because he is merciful and gracious. Or here in the Hebrew, he is rachum vachanun, which is the next line of our text. Now, these words in the Hebrew, they're a pairing, meaning that they, are, they not only sound alike, but they often sit together side by side throughout the scriptures. And each word, it explains the other. For instance, Rahum could also be translated as compassionate or merciful. And it comes from the root word Rachem, meaning bowels or womb, quite literally. And so it is. It is a feeling word. It's like it's the way that a mother or a father feels towards their child. For instance, Psalm 103 in verses 13 and 14, it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. Amen. And then Isaiah 49 and verse 15, it tells us, It says, can a woman or a mother forget the nursing child that she should have no compassion upon the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, says Yahweh. Praise God. And so, mercy or rachum is a feeling word. But then... The other, on the other hand, the other word in our pairing, gracious or chanun, is an action word. As it comes from the verb chanan, which means to show or to give grace to someone or something. And we see this verb in action during the exchange between Jacob and Esau in Genesis 33. Verse 4 it says, Esau ran to meet Jacob. And embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given. And the words graciously given in the Hebrew is only one word. It's the verb chanun. And so it's literally, God has graced me or given me children. It's an action. He has done something. We find another example of this in Exodus 22 in verses 26 and 27. Where it says, If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body in what else shall he sleep and if he cries to me I will hear for I am compassionate or chanun and so in short it's not just about going about having a feeling but rather this feeling it moves God into action amen And so this pairing, it is the Father's way of saying, I feel deeply for you. 
and I care. But it doesn't stop there. Because I am moved by my compassion to do something for you. That when our backs are against the wall, as it were, and when we cry out to God, God moves heaven and earth to come to our aid. And what that looks like could either be a resolution in the form of provision or healing, or it could be the nearness of his presence, that blessed assurance that God is with us. He stands beside us and he goes before us, even in the midst of our storms. Amen? Either way, he is Rahum Vachanun, or he is merciful and he is gracious. That he not only sees our plight, but he is also moved by his compassion to meet with us and do something for us. Can somebody give him praise? Amen. Amen. Now, holding that together, let us go to the book of Jonah and let us read from chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. And it says this. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, Nineveh, as you know, today is located in modern-day Iraq, and it goes by the name of Mosul. But back then, it was the capital of Assyria, the enemy of Israel. And to say that they weren't a very nice people would be somewhat of an understatement because they were a barbaric race. And just to give you a little flavor, allow me to read this excerpt from a recent article that was featured in The Guardian by Jonathan Jones. And he writes, Assyrian art contains some of the most appalling images ever created. In one scene, tongues are being ripped from the mouths of prisoners that will mute their screams when, in the next stage of their torture, they are flayed or skinned alive. Yeah. In another scene, a surrendering general is about to be beheaded. And in a third, prisoners have to grind their father's bones before being executed on the streets of Nineveh. And all of these abhorrent scenes depicting the reality of ancient Assyria can all be seen on display at the British Museum in London. It's kind of like those disturbing scenes that went viral back in 2014 when ISIS captured journalists along with Christians and beheaded them and then posted the footage far and wide on social media. Just horrendous, wasn't it? And so we totally understand why Jonah, instead of going to Nineveh, he set sail for Tarshish, which is modern-day Spain. (laughs) And note, it is located in exactly the opposite direction. 
that's how strongly he felt towards Nineveh that he didn't want to go, neither for love or money. True. (laughs) Now, up to this point in the story of Jonah, all we know is that the prophet is on the run. But we don't know why exactly until we get to chapter 3. Because it is there that after being swallowed and spat up by a fish, that Jonah finally does what he was told, in that he delivers God's word and he preaches his very short sermon, which essentially is yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah 3 and verse 4. And as he does, it's every preacher's dream. Revival breaks out. And let's pick it up from verse 6 onwards. In the NIV it says, When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Wow. Imagine that. Those who ripped out the tongues of others and skinned their enemies alive and beheaded them are now pleading for mercy. Wow. Should God give it to them? Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did, And how they turned from their evil ways. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Chapter 4. But this displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And so he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, and here comes our quote from Exodus, that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, take my life from me, for it is better to die than to live. In other words, Jonah is having a pretty tough time right about now because God is showing compassion on a people that deserve fire and brimstone. True? And Yahweh replies, Is it right for you to be angry? And let's be real here. It is quite challenging, isn't it? You see, we often think of Jonah as this disobedient, sulky little prophet. But in reality, 
He is a picture of us all. I mean, we love the fact that God shows us mercy. But it's a different story when he shows mercy for the other person who used us or abused us. Grace for us, but not for that friend or colleague who snaked us or stabbed us in the back. For them, we tend to pray in the same vein as the sons of thunder, James and John, who said, Lord, shall we call down fire from the heavens like Elijah and burn them up? Fire for them, but let there be grace and mercy for us. Right? You see, we love it when God is on our side, but we don't do so well when he is on the side of the other But the truth is that God is not on anybody's side but his own. And he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. Exodus 33, 19. Because God, and we thank God, that he has shown us such unmerited And such undeserved favor because if he were to mark our transgressions, who could stand? Psalm 103. Amen. Now, when I'm out sharing the gospel, I will often come across some people who are quick to point out the many flaws, quote unquote, in the Bible. And they will say things like, The God of the Old Testament cannot possibly be the same as the God of the New Testament. Because the God of the Old Testament seems like this grumpy old granddad type figure, whereas the God in the New Testament is more chill, that he loves everyone. And so they cannot possibly be the same God. And I love to put a pin into that argument. Because the truth is, the God of both Testaments is exactly the same because they share the exact same characteristics and attributes that we find in Exodus chapter 34. And the characteristic of mercy and grace is clearly seen on display in the person of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Praise God. And if you'd like a couple of examples, then come with me to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 17 and from verse 11 onwards, it's where our Lord is en route to Jerusalem and he comes across ten lepers who, standing at a distance, yell, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And the word mercy here in the Greek is the term eleeo, which is the Hebrew equivalent of chanun. In other words, just as Yahweh is merciful, therefore show us mercy, Jesus. And he does. And he heals them. Turn over the page to Luke 18 and verse 35 onwards. And it says, As he drew near to Jericho, A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. 
And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And there's that word again, Ele'eo, or mercy, or Hanun. And calling Jesus the son of David is a first century way of saying, I believe that you are the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel. Therefore, just like Yahweh is Rahum Vachanun, or he is merciful and gracious, likewise have mercy on me. And Jesus does, and he restores his sight. Praise Jesus. And so in short, the God of both testaments is exactly the same. Nothing has changed. Because Jesus Christ is Yahweh in the flesh. And he remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Glory. Now, in both of these accounts, note how they come to Jesus. And that they don't come based upon their own good merits or their own good deeds. That Jesus owes them something. No. But rather they come with a sense of humility. Not based upon who they are or what they have done. But based upon who God is. And that God is merciful and he is gracious. And the same is true of us. That when we come to him humbly, it is then that he calls us his child. And when we cry out to him, he not only feels our pain, but he is moved by his compassion to show us great grace and great mercy. Amen. Now, what does this all have to do with us and what does it mean for us here at Lighthouse Church today? I'm so glad that you asked. Because in Luke chapter 6, we find what is known as the greatest sermon ever preached, namely the Sermon on the Mount. And in verses 35 and 36, Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Verse 36, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Note, love your enemies. Lend, expecting nothing in return, and be kind, because this is what God is like. And then finally, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And there it is. In other words, we are called to be imitators of God. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Amen. Now, it all sounds very simple, I know. But how difficult is it 
to put into practice. I mean, the person who cuts us off at the roundabout, instead of giving them mercy, we want to give them what for, right? Or is that just me? Maybe I've just exposed myself there. But you see, that's our fallen human nature. But that's not what God is like. Because he is gracious, he is compassionate, and he is merciful, even to those who do not deserve it. And he calls us to be likewise. You see, the end goal of being a Talmudim or a disciple or a follower of Jesus or whatever language you want to put to that, it is to become more like our rabbi. And so our text of Exodus 34, 6 and 7 doesn't just tell us about who God is, but it also tells us about who we are in light of who he is. And so, because God is merciful, let us also be. And because God is gracious, let us also be. And so on and so forth. Put on then as God's holy ones, holy, sorry, chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and Patience, Colossians 3 and verse 12. And note, the first attribute on this list is what? Compassionate hearts. In other words, when you wake up in the morning and you put on your Levi's or your dress or your suit or whatever you put on, clothe yourselves with compassion especially before your interaction with that difficult customer or that client or even that annoying person that we spoke of last time. They're still there. Clothe yourselves with compassion and let us become more like our rabbi. Amen. Amen. Because as Toza said, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our vision of God. And so let us have a correct understanding of the Father and then let us demonstrate that to the world. And we can't go wrong. True. And let us start where we are. In that let us show compassion to the ones that we live with, to our friends and our family, to our church family, and even to the stranger that we meet on a daily basis. Because by doing such, I believe that we can transform our culture and our community by implementing and living out kingdom values and principles. It's the upside-down kingdom, isn't it? It's living the Jesus way, being salt and light wherever we are, because that speaks volumes to a world which sounds, stands such counter and so far from the scriptures. But it is, it all starts with the man or the woman in the mirror, as Michael Jackson once sang. In other words, it all starts with you and I. Amen. And what's more is whilst we're on this journey together of becoming more Christ-like, 
let us also become one another's greatest cheerleader and champion, showing the world that we are marked by a different spirit, namely the Holy Spirit. And let us show the world this Christmas and beyond that we serve a God who is rich in mercy. That God so loved that in his mercy and in his grace he gave and is still giving away his son today. So let us be conduits of that goodness, that grace and that mercy. For freely we have received and so let us freely give. Amen. And so in closing, if you are here this morning and you do not know this Savior, the one that we call the Christ, and if God has been moving in your hearts this morning and you want to know him, then please come and grab me after the service and I would love to speak with you. Amen. Amen. And for those of us who know the Lord, I pray that we will become more and more like our Lord. And just like my mom, showing me grace became a picture and a reference point of God's goodness and his grace. May we also become a picture and a reference point for others pointing towards God's infinite grace and his abundant mercy. Amen. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, we want to thank you for what you have done. For what you did, O oh God, is something that we could never in a million years have done for ourselves. And Father, we thank you, God, that you showed us such grace and such mercy when we were so undeserving, so far from you. And like the Ninevites, God, we deserve, Father, your wrath and fury, Lord God. And you would have been perfectly just and perfectly holy and perfectly righteous in dispensing that judgment. And yet, God, you showed us such lavish grace and mercy. God, we can't even put language around what you have done. And God, we will spend an eternity just marveling at the benefits of the cross of what was accomplished, Lord. That how, Father, wrath and fury was poured out upon your Son, absorbing it all. And, Father, grace and mercy and love, abundant and eternal, flows out towards us. So, Father, we just give you praise for what you've done. And, God, as we have received of this, as we have tasted just a, a little glimpse, Lord God, of your greatness... Father, I pray that with the little that we have tasted, that, God, that we will not hold back, but, Lord, we will let that shine, Father, before others, that we will give it away. Because, God, we know that the more we give, Lord, the more you fill within us and our cup, it overflows. So, Father, we pray that, God, may we, Lord, at this season, at this time, God, God, may we be conduits of your grace of your mercy, freshly receiving from it ourselves on a daily basis, and then, Father, freshly and freely pouring it out to those 
who have no hope and grace, God. Father, we pray that, Lord, that your people, Lord, will be, Father, just galvanized and just stirred, Lord, to show your heart, God, because that's your heart. You are still a missional God. And, Father, we are your missional people. And we thank you, God, that you call us into your mission. And, Father, we pray, God, that you will extend and advance your kingdom through your people and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.